presents Project 1065 by Alan Grotz, read by Dan Bittner. with Nazis. It's hard to smile when you're having dinner with Nazis. There were Nazis all up and down the long table, talking and laughing and eating. There were Nazi soldiers in their gray German army uniforms. There were SS officers, members of Adolf Hitler's private protection squadron, in their black uniforms and red armbands. There were regular civilian Nazis who didn't fight in the military, who ran banks and factories and newspapers and wore suits and ties and Nazi pins. And then there was me, Michael O'Shaughnessy, wearing my brown long-sleeved shirt, black shorts, white knee socks, and black hiking boots polished to a shine. And just like the SS, the most fearsome killers in all the land, I wore a red armband with a big black swastika in the center of it. The hooked cross symbol the Nazis plastered all over everything. I wore the uniform of the Hitler Youth, Germany's version of the Boy Scouts. Because I was a Nazi too. Or at least I was pretending to be. More cake? The Nazi next to me asked, offering me another slice. Light from the chandelier glinted on the silver skull pin on his collar. Um, sure. Thanks, I said. That's very kind of you. I remembered to smile, even though it took effort. I hated pretending to like these people. Hated pretending to agree with their awful hatred of the Jews. Hated pretending I wanted them to win the war and conquer the world. But I smiled because I had to. If they ever discovered I wasn't really one of them, my family and I would disappear into a concentration camp, never to be seen or heard from again. Your German is so good, the woman on my other side told me. She was the wife of a captain in the German army. If I didn't know your father was the Irish ambassador, I would think you grew up here in Berlin. I sagged in my chair. I heard this every time my family attended one of these dinners. I wasn't exactly the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryan ideal, but with my flawless German accent and my brown hair that fell like a mop into my brown eyes, I could pass for an average German boy any day. I wasn't proud of it, but it was definitely useful. Michael's always had a good head for languages, my father said in German. He sat across from me at the table. My mother, two seats down from him. We've only been here for six years, but he already speaks better German than I do. 1937. That was the year my father was named Irish ambassador to Germany, and we moved from London, where he'd been stationed, to Berlin. It was 1943 now, and I was 13 years old. Things had changed so much in those six years. Berlin had been a wonderland when I first arrived. All towering columns with eagle statues on top and red flags fluttering from every building and parades 10,000 people strong. 
Hitler was already the Chancellor of Germany, and the Nazis, his political party, were well in control. Germany wasn't at war yet, and not everybody was a Nazi back then, but it was hard to argue with their success. Everywhere I'd looked, I'd seen faces full of smiles and laughter. But then, overnight, the party had ended. Not the Nazi party. They had only gotten stronger. The other party, the feeling of unbounded German cheerfulness, was gone. I had finally seen the horror behind the smiles, and so had the rest of the world. What happened that one night still haunted me. Michael's always had an exceptional memory. Haven't you, son? Ma said, breaking into my thoughts. It's true, my father said. Michael reads in German, tells jokes in German. I think he even dreams in German. The adults around us at the table gave him a polite chuckle. Da the diplomat, doing what he did best. His mustache widened as he beamed at me but the eyes that peered at me over his glasses weren't smiling. They were reminding me to smile, to be friendly, to play my part. I picked up my glass of grape juice and took a drink to hide my frown. You are a better German than some Germans, the Nazi who had offered me cake said. His name was Trumbauer, and his rank within the SS was Übersturmführer, which meant senior assault leader. He was a tall, thin man with slicked-back, jet-black hair and a nose like a parrot's beak. Just today, we raided the home of a German couple who are hiding a Jew in their attic. Right here, in Berlin. He shook his head as if he couldn't believe the stupidity of some people. How did you know they were hiding a Jew? The woman next to me asked. SS Übersturmführer Trumbauer cut out a bite of his cake with his fork and lifted it. Their son reported them. I shuddered. Their own son ratting them out to the secret police. I couldn't imagine ever doing something like that to my own parents. What's happened to them? I asked. Hmm? SS Übersturmführer Trumbauer said, swallowing his cake. Oh. The Germans were taken into protective custody at Dachau, of course. The Jew was shot while trying to escape. The SS Übersturmführer's words rattled me, and I knocked over my glass trying to set it back down. It struck the rim of my plate and shattered, sending glass and grape juice everywhere. I caught my reflection in every one of the tiny shards, half a dozen little Michael O'Shaughnessy's looking up at me in horror. Suddenly, I was back again on that Berlin street that night four years ago when everything had changed. When I'd finally learned what monsters the Nazis really were. Kristallnacht. It was a cool night in early November 1938. I was eight years old, going on nine. My parents and I had just been to see a movie... A German film about the Olympics, which had been held in Berlin the year before we moved there. I was upset because I'd wanted to see The Adventures of Robin Hood instead. I'd read the book and wanted to see the American movie of it, but the Nazis had banned the film from Germany. I hopped from the sidewalk into the street and back again, pretending to be Robin Hood, fighting the Sheriff of Nottingham as we walked home to the Irish Embassy. 
I loved the idea of Robin Hood protecting the poor and the helpless from the evil King John, especially because John was the King of England. If I weren't Irish and already born to hate them, I had plenty of other good reasons for loathing the English. Then we heard the first crash. The three of us froze. The crash was followed by a woman's scream, and the acrid smell of smoke bit at my nose as a black cloud rose over the rooftops the next street over. A fire, Da said. Hurry, we have to help. We ran for the street corner, but before we got there, five men in brown shirts and red armbands came around the turn carrying axes and sledgehammers and paintbrushes and torches. One of them smashed a store window with his axe and my father threw out an arm to hold me and Ma back. Glass showered the streets, shattering into a thousand bright shards. A man dipped his brush into a can of paint and then slathered it all up and down the front of the shop, painting something on the wood. Across the street, two more men broke the windows of a department store and tossed red paint all over the shoes on display. I didn't understand. Go, move. Ma said, snapping us all out of our stupor. We have to run. Why? What's happening? I asked, but my parents were already dragging me away. More shouts, more screams. Far off in the distance, a siren. We ran into a side street and stopped again. Shards of glass covered every inch of the street like ice, crunching under our feet. Every window had been shattered, and the word Judah... The German word for Jew had been painted on storefronts. Sometimes there were even little cartoon pictures of Jews. They had big noses and round heads and dull looks on their faces. My God, they're finally doing it, Da said. They're going after the Jews. I didn't understand what he meant, but I was afraid. Men wearing plain clothes and carrying axes had broken down the door of a synagogue where Jewish people went to pray. The men began tossing prayer books and scrolls into the middle of the street. One of the men with a torch bent to set fire to the pile, and another man, a Jew, I guessed, came running out of an apartment building nearby trying to stop him. The other men caught the Jew, and one of them struck him in the head with the wooden handle of his axe. The Jewish man dropped down to the street, the broken glass clattering beneath him. And the men gathered around him and beat him with the handles of their axes, while their comrades set fire to the pile of Jewish relics. I gaped in horror, my heart thudding in my chest in time with the wax of the axe handles, until my mother put her hand over my eyes and pulled me away. We have to get back to the embassy, Da said. I pushed my mother's hand away and dragged the sleeve of my coat across my eyes. I hadn't even realized I was crying. That man. They were hurting him. We have to go back and help him, I said. We can't, love, my mother whispered. She was crying, too, I realized, and that scared me even more. Keep your heads down, Da told us. Keep your heads down and don't say anything or do anything. Every street we turned down was strewn with broken glass and filled with men carrying sledgehammers and axes. It was happening all over the city. Some of the rioters wore the brown shirts of the SA, the Sturmabteilung, the thugs of the Nazi party. But more of them wore ordinary woolen trousers and suspenders and white work shirts with the sleeves rolled up. 
regular citizens who wanted to run the Jewish people out of town. We were close to the embassy when we came upon a squad of Gestapo, Germany's secret police, loading men into a truck. At last, the police were rounding up the rioters. A Gestapo man stopped us and spoke to my father. I didn't know much German then, but I understood that he wanted to see our papers. He told us to stay where we were while he checked in with another officer. They're rounding up Jews, my father whispered, taking them to the labor camps. I frowned at the men being loaded into the truck. Why were Jewish people being arrested? The Jews were the ones the Nazis were attacking. I wanted to shout at the police, tell them they were doing everything backward to make them stop. But I was helpless. A little boy. I couldn't even speak their language. My mother grabbed my father's arm. Davin, there. A man across the street was trying to sneak away in the shadows. I knew that. The cry had come from above me. I looked up and saw a boy about my age hanging out the window. The boy was yelling and pointing at the man across the street who was trying to get away. I knew enough German to have understood the word Jew. He was telling on him to the police. One of the Gestapo men saw the Jewish man trying to escape. He called out for him to stop, but the man ran. The Gestapo man pulled out his gun and fired. Bang, bang, bang. The shots rang loud in the street, drowning out my cry of no. The Jewish man arced wildly as one of the bullets hit him, and he stumbled forward into one of the shattered storefronts, falling face first at the feet of mannequins splashed red with paint. A sharp piece of broken glass poked up through the back of his shirt, stained red with his blood. He was dead. No, I cried again, but my mother pulled my face to her coat to muffle my screams. I pushed and fought to get away, but she was too big, too strong. I didn't know what I was going to do if I got free. I just wanted to do something, anything. The Gestapo man with our papers walked back over to us, crushing shards of glass under the heel of his boot. I stopped struggling and held my breath. What if they took us away, too? What if they shot my mother, my father? The Gestapo man said something in German. He must have told us our papers were in order, because Da dragged us away. We held one another close, stepping over the glass. I kept my eyes on the ground, where I saw my reflection in each and every one of the shards of glass. Hundreds of little Michael O'Shaughnessy's looking back at me in despair. We have to do something, I whispered. We are doing something, Da told me. What? What are we doing? I asked. We're just running away. Da and Ma exchanged a look. We have jobs, Michael. Roles to play here, Ma said. Important ones. And if we fight these people right here and now, we can't do those jobs anymore. What? You mean being ambassadors? What good is that when people are dying? We're not only ambassadors, Michael, Ma whispered. We have another mission. A secret mission. Megan, Da said warningly. If he's going to share in the danger, he should at least know the truth of it, Ma said. Da sighed and gave in. And that's when they told me their secret. Our secret. 
right there on a Berlin street in the middle of what later came to be called Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. My struggle. A dark stain of grape juice under my broken glass soaked into the tablecloth like blood, and I jumped up. The grape juice had spilled onto my lap while I'd been lost in my memory of Kristallnacht. Now it stained my Hitler Youth uniform. Oh dear, Ma said standing up. Is there some place where my cook can get cleaned up? Servants were already descending on the table to mop up the spill. The lady of the house, a woman in a burgundy dress with a white pearl necklace and earrings, stood and gestured to one of the servants. Of course, it's just around the corner and down the hall on the right. Greta will take you. I hurried out of the dining room. I can do it myself, I said. I definitely didn't want anyone to come with me. I heard Ma apologizing for me. I'm sorry. Now that he is 13, he won't let me do anything for him either. He'll be all right. I ran down the hall toward the bathroom. And then, with a quick look over my shoulder to make sure no one had followed me, I snuck up the stairs instead. S.S. Übersturmführer Trumbauer's story about the boy turning in his parents really had rattled me. But I had always planned to have an accident with my grape juice. A little spill on my uniform was just the excuse I needed to disappear for a few minutes. There was a long hallway at the top of the stairs, stretching left and right. It was the biggest house I'd ever been in, but that made sense. The man who owned the house, who had invited my father, my mother, and me to dinner with a table full of important Nazis, was a bigwig at Daimler-Benz, a German automobile company getting rich making engines for Nazi tanks and planes and submarines. I didn't have much time. I hurried down one of the hallways, peeking in through the doors until I finally found one that looked like a study. The walls were lined with bookcases some of which held trophies and pictures of race cars. I hurried to the big desk that backed up against a wall of curtained windows. It was night, and the room was dark, but I didn't want to turn on the overhead light and draw attention to myself. I clicked on the green glass desk lamp instead, recoiling in fear that even that amount of light was too much. But I had to be able to see to find what I was looking for. People didn't just hand you their secrets, you had to go hunting for them. I started with the papers on the desk. Internal company memos, official purchase orders from the German government, personal correspondence. All probably very interesting, but not what I wanted. I rifled through the desk drawers. There was a sound in the hall, like floorboards creaking under the weight of a person, and I froze. I reached out to the light, my hand hovering over the chain, but there wasn't another sound. I left the light on and scanned the desk, trying to think where it would be hidden. Not in plain sight, not in an official letter. There was a little toy car sitting on a leather-bound book, and I picked up the car to examine it. I poked at it, peered inside it, pulled at the wheels, but it was just a toy car. I set it aside and picked up the book. It was a copy of Mein Kampf, My Struggle. The book Adolf Hitler wrote while he was sitting in a jail cell in Munich for trying to overthrow the government, back before I was born. Now that Hitler ran Germany, Mein Kampf was required reading for anybody in the Nazi party. 
or at least required owning. Despite a playing card tucked into it as a bookmark, it looked like the book had never been opened. The playing card. I glanced at the page number to be able to put it back where it was and looked at the card under the light. It was a jack of spades. I turned it over, then ran my fingers down the edge. Was it thicker than usual? I couldn't tell. I squinted at the edge under the light. Was there a seam there? I ran my fingernail down it, but it didn't separate. Maybe this wasn't it. Maybe I was wasting time. How long had I been away from the dinner party? Had they sent one of the servants to look for me? My fingernail caught. There was a seam. I very carefully worked my fingernail along the edge, trying not to mar the card or tear it, until I got to the corner. I pinched both edges of the seam between my fingers and pulled, and the front and back of the card peeled apart. Inside, printed where no one could see it, was row after row of numbers. I peeled the card the rest of the way apart and read the numbers straight through one time, absorbing them. The floor outside creaked again. I rolled the two halves of the card back together, stuck the card back into the book, and clicked off the light. The doorknob turned, and the door groaned on its hinges. Someone was coming into the room. Nowhere to run. I stepped behind the curtains along the back wall as the door opened. The curtains wavered from my movement, and I pinched a tiny part of them between my fingers to stop them from stirring. The floor creaked. Someone was in the room with me. I held my breath for the click of the light switch, but it didn't come. I could hear the swish of clothes, the careful footfalls, but the person didn't turn on the light. Not the big overhead one. I heard the chick-chick of the desk lamp, and light glowed through the thin curtains in front of me. I could see the silhouette of a person through the curtain. Could they see me? Had I put everything back on the desk the same way I'd found it? My stomach did somersaults, and suddenly I wished I hadn't had that extra piece of cake. The person in the room moved again, away from the desk. I heard the clink of glass, the brief, quiet slosh of liquid. What was going on? I had to know. I could see the dim figure of the person through the curtain could tell he or she was bent over something, not looking in my direction. Slowly, carefully, I peeked out from behind the curtain. A man in a dark suit stood over a little table on the other side of the room. He was a servant, I realized, the man who'd met us at the door, the butler. The table had glass bottles on it, drinks. He was pouring a drink for someone, but who? Everyone else was downstairs, weren't they? The butler glanced around to make sure no one was watching, and I ducked back behind the curtain. I saw his shadow raise the glass to his own lips and drink down whatever it was in one long gulp. He poured the drink for himself. I let out a silent breath of relief. All I had to do was wait for him to leave. A light flashed behind me suddenly. The bright wash of a searchlight, the ones the Germans used to search the skies for Allied bombers. It startled me, and I turned to look out the window, which was a mistake. The courtyard below was a straight shot down from the window. I closed my eyes, but it was too late. 
My head swam. My knees buckled. I had to grab for the latch on the window just to keep myself on my feet, and it rattled under my weight. I was deathly afraid of heights. Who's there? came the butler's startled voice. The silhouette of the butler came closer. All he had to do was pull back the curtains and he would find me. I tried desperately to think of some excuse. I'd gotten lost on the way to the bathroom. I'd seen the race cars on the shelves and come in for a closer look. But none of them explained why I was hiding behind the curtains with the lights off. I was going to be caught, and my family and I would be thrown into a prison camp. There would be an international incident. The butler's hand wrapped around the curtain. My heart thudded in my chest. I looked left, looked right, backed away as close as I could to the window. I had nowhere to run. The mission. The butler's hand slid away from the curtain and he crumpled to the ground. Behind him stood another silhouette, shorter and rounder. Michael? The shadow whispered. It was my mother. I stepped out from the curtains, my heart still racing, and almost tripped on the prone form of the butler on the floor. My mother was a small, dimple-cheeked woman with her brown hair cut short and curled, wearing a simple but elegant green dress. I was almost as tall as she was, and we were both definitely smaller than the butler. Did you? I started to ask, but I could see the butler's chest rising and falling. He wasn't dead, just asleep. Ma held up her handkerchief. Chloroform. I always keep a bottle in my handbag for emergencies. Did you get it? I got it. But what about him? I asked, nodding at the butler. What was he doing in here? Did he see you? No. He came in and poured himself a drink. Ma smiled. Likes to have a nip of the good stuff, does he? Can't blame a soul for that. But I'm afraid he's going to get in trouble for it this time. Help me drag him to the chair. Together we wrestled the butler into the reading chair beside the table, and Ma took a bottle from the table and poured some of it on his shirt before leaving the bottle in his hands. Don't think he had one too many, poor dear. But it's the only way to cover our tracks. Let's go. Ma and I went back to the table where everyone had moved on from dessert to cigarettes and coffee. All I wanted was to get out of the house before the butler upstairs was discovered. Before anyone could suspect that we'd had anything to do with it. But if we left right away, we would look even more suspicious. Ma gave Da a slight nod to let him know the business was done, and we settled in to listen to our host boasting about Germany's success in the war. Poland, France, Luxembourg, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, they have all fallen in the great German avalanche that is sweeping Europe. And once the Sixth Army prevails in Stalingrad, Soviet Russia, too, will fall. And after Russia, we shall finally defeat the English. There were smiles all around, except from my family. My father cleared his throat and my mother looked at her plate. But not our friends in Ireland, of course, who have remained steadfastly neutral throughout the war, our host said magnanimously, raising a glass to my father. 
Da smiled politely and returned the toast. We all knew that being neutral hadn't helped Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, or Luxembourg when the Nazis decided they wanted those countries. Germany had overrun them all shortly after invading Poland in 1939, just a year after Kristallnacht, setting off a world war. Now, four years into the war, the Germans were after Russia and England, who were holding them off only with the help of the Americans. But Ireland had just won its independence from England before the war, and so we decided to sit this one out, which was why we still had an embassy in Berlin when hardly any other country did. But we were under no delusions. If Germany ever wanted Ireland, they would help themselves. I think it's time we were going, Da said, putting his napkin on the table. We'll want to be getting home before the Allies start dropping their bombs on Berlin again. That shut them up quick. It was a chilly reminder that not everything was coming up roses for Germany. And I loved my Da all the more for saying it. Everyone else stirred to leave. Send for the butler, the lady of the house told one of the servants. Ma rose quickly. We'll see ourselves out. Thank you for a lovely evening. Soon we had made our escape and were in the car on the way back to the embassy. I assume you two had something to do with the missing butler? Da asked as he drove. Michael ran into a spot of trouble, Ma said. But it's nothing we couldn't straighten out. Da thumped the steering wheel. Damnation, Megan. I don't like using Michael in this business. It's dangerous. What if he'd been caught? He wasn't, Ma said. And even if they're suspicious, they won't find anything missing, will they, Michael? I shook my head. Ma gave me a pleased look and pulled a small notepad and pencil from her handbag. Here, not that you're likely to forget it. But write it out so we'll have it down. I took the pencil and paper and copied out the long strings of numbers, exactly as I had seen them. I could remember them as though I was looking at a photograph in my own head. It was a trick I'd been able to do since before I could remember. I handed the notebook back with the numbers written out. What is it? I asked. The location of a new engine factory, Ma said, tucking it away. Da sighed. I'll get them sent out in tomorrow's diplomatic pouch to Dublin. I sat back in my seat, proud that I was doing something at last. Something to fight back against the Nazis. Something to make up for that night four years ago when I'd felt so helpless. And for every night in between. I had found the secret codes and memorized them. Ma had covered my tracks. Tonight, she would decode them, and in the morning, Da would send the coordinates back to Dublin using a secret code of his own. There, Irish intelligence, even though they were supposed to be neutral, would secretly pass along the location to the British. And a week from now, maybe two, Allied bombers would fly over that hidden German engine factory and bomb it back to the Stone Age. This was the mission. This was the secret my parents had shared with me four years ago on Kristallnacht. Ireland might have officially been neutral, but unofficially, its ambassador to Germany and his family were spies for the Allies. The German Look 
A light snow fell on the sidewalks of Berlin as I walked to school the next morning. But at least snow was all that was falling. Half the buildings on the street were roofless, hollowed-out husks, victims of the relentless Allied bombings. Bombing Berlin was easy. It was the capital of Germany. Unlike the secret engine factory I discovered the location of, the Allies knew right where Berlin was. The British and the Americans took turns dropping bombs on the city. The British at night, the Americans during the day, sending us scrambling for the air raid shelters every few hours. But even after spending two hours in the middle of the night below ground, showered by grit from the concrete ceilings, and feeling the dull thud of the explosions rattle their teeth, the people of Berlin were up and ready to face the day. They emerged from their houses grim and determined, or maybe grim and resigned. Some Germans must have gotten up every day and thought, Hitler is right. We are the master race. Soon we'll rule the world. But there had to be more people, lots more, who got up every day and thought, if I just keep my head down and do what I'm supposed to do, maybe I'll make it through this in one piece. There was nothing to do but go to work for Nazi Germany, for Hitler. To refuse meant arrest, and arrest meant the concentration camps. Everybody knew the concentration camps were awful places, where awful things happened. But nobody ever talked about it. That way, they could pretend it wasn't really happening. People talked about plenty of other stuff they weren't supposed to, but only after a quick glance over their shoulder to make sure no one else was listening. Everybody did it so much, there was even a special word for it. Deutscherblick. The German look. You did the German look right before you said Germany might be losing the war, or complained about the food rations, or told a joke about Hitler. Because someone was always listening, always waiting to turn you into the Nazi secret police, always ready to rat you out to prove how loyal they were, even if they had said the very same thing yesterday. The Berlin I walked through on the way to school was a quiet, suspicious city. People kept their eyes down, whispered if they had to talk, crossed the street to avoid having to give the Hitler salute to someone they knew in case they didn't say, Heil Hitler loud enough or raise their arm high enough. Nobody wanted to call attention to themselves. Nobody wanted to stand out. Nobody wanted the Nazis to notice them. Just walking to school was like trying to walk past a sleeping bear. I had a test coming up that day, but I wasn't too worried about it. Nazi school was a joke. We spent most of the time doing physical education, playing games, running races, exercising. What little time we spent in the classroom was spent listening to the teacher tell us all about the glorious and short history of the Nazi party or teaching us how to tell German Aryans from subhumans. The history stuff I always aced. I have a good memory for things, like the secret numbers I'd read off the playing card. All I have to do is see or hear something one time, and it sticks in my head like a song you can't get rid of. It had helped me pick up the German language, and helped me memorize answers for tests, but it had made me a kind of freak, too. And when you were an Irish kid at an English boarding school like I was when my da was stationed in London, being a freak got you beat up daily. Here in Berlin, it might get me killed. 
in school, I hung my coat on a peg and took a seat near the back of the room. I didn't have any friends at school on purpose, so I sat alone. My class was all 13-year-old boys, 40 of us, no girls. They had school in an entirely different building. None of the boys were studying for the math test we had today because none of them cared. Almost all of them, like me, were in the Hitler Youth. We were all going to move from the Jungfolk, the junior Hitler Youth ranks, to the senior Hitler Youth squads in a year's time when we turned 14. At 18, we would graduate from the Hitler Youth into the Reich's land service and work for free on a farm in the country for a year. And after that, we would join the army or the navy or the air force and fight in the war. What did we need to worry about math for? I tugged on the collar of my Hitler Youth uniform. I hated the thing. I felt like a traitor wearing it. But if you were a boy in Nazi Germany in 1943, you were in the Hitler Youth. It was a requirement. Some of the boys in class were in my Hitler Youth troop, but not all of them. The troops were arranged by neighborhood. The only boys in the class who weren't in the Hitler Youth had been kicked out or weren't allowed in until their parents joined the Nazi party and they sat wary and miserable in the front rows, trying desperately to avoid the rest of the boys who were allowed to bully them without punishment. If those poor boys didn't find a way to join the Hitler Youth before we graduated, they wouldn't have any kind of future in Nazi Germany. They would get drafted into the German army at the lowest ranks and sent to Russia to die in the snow. A boy stood by the desk next to me. I recognized him. His name was Fritz Brendler. He was new. He'd moved to Berlin only a few weeks ago. He was barely taller standing up than I was sitting down. The Hitler youth uniform he wore was two sizes too big for him, and his legs and arms stuck out of it like the wooden stick limbs of a marionette. His nose was long and thin, his blonde hair cut so close he was almost bald, and his ears, the only parts of him that were regular size, looked so huge on his little head that they stuck out like the wings on a bomber. I could sense Fritz hoping I would turn and say hello, but I didn't. I didn't want a new friend, definitely not a German one who might be a rabid Nazi for all I knew. I had a job to do, and a German friend would just get in the way. Sit down, sit down, you little wretches, Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher said giving a tardy student a hard smack on the head with his ruler as the boy tried to slip by him into a desk. It was time for Nazi school. Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher. Nobody liked Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher. For one thing, he had too many titles. The Germans loved their titles. Because he was a man, you had to call him Herr, the German word for mister. Because he was a teacher, you had to call him professor. Because he had a doctorate from Heidelberg University, you had to call him doctor. And because he'd been a major in the German army, you had to call him major. Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher. It took so long to ask him if you could go to the bathroom, you could wet yourself. We should have just been glad he didn't have two doctorates. Then we would have had to call him Herr Professor Dr. Dr. Major Melcher. Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher was old and wrinkly, 
with a bristly white mustache you could have used as a horse brush, and a liver spot the shape of Czechoslovakia on his forehead. He used to be a college professor until all the college-age students were sent off to war, and he was super mad about it and never let us forget it. The only reason anybody put up with him at all was because he'd fought in the First World War, and fighting was about all anybody in Germany respected anymore. I was surprised he wore a brown woolen suit and tie instead of his old uniform and pointy helmet. Even though I wasn't his biggest fan, I had a soft spot for the old codger. I'd gotten the impression he didn't love the Nazis. It was nothing Melcher had said or done. Anything that explicit would have gotten him hauled off to a concentration camp or re-enlisted in the army, even though he was too old to fight again. It was just the way he talked so lovingly about the way things used to be. I felt he was a kindred spirit, a fellow faker. It's already enough that I waste my time on you ignoramuses when I should be teaching at university, Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher told us. Sit down and shut up, all of you, before you take your math tests. I have two items you will no doubt consider to be good news. The first, as you may have heard, is that the Führer has announced that Berlin is now officially Jew-free. There were smiles and clapping all around. I gave a fake little smile to mask my disapproval as Fritz, the new boy, turned to nod and grin at me. The Germans had been carting the Jews away to concentration camps all over Germany, ever since the night of broken glass. And now, according to Herr Maggot Hitler, they were gone from his capital city. The second, Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher said, is that the decision has been made to call up all 17-year-old Hitler youth members directly into the German army. The room erupted in excited conversation. 17-year-olds fighting in the army? For the German government to call up senior Hitler youth members to the army was one thing. To announce that they would be skipping the usual year of service working on farms in the countryside was even more extraordinary. That meant the Nazis were drafting boys just four years older than all of us straight to the front lines. And I knew why. The rest of the boys in the class only got the news the German government gave them. But my family and I had a radio that could pick up the BBC News Service from London. The truth was, the German 6th Army had just been forced to surrender to the Russians at Stalingrad after a six-month siege, a loss of more than 285,000 German soldiers. German radio was still listing the names of the tens of thousands of soldiers who died before the surrender. The Nazis were scrambling, trying to build their numbers back up after their disaster on the Eastern Front. The BBC News called it a turning point in the war, a shift in the favor of the English, American, and Russian allies. For the first time in the war, the Nazis were on the ropes. I let myself smile about it while everyone else thought I was smiling about getting to fight for the Nazis sooner. As a result of the senior Hitler youth members being called into active duty, the age for graduation from the young folk to the Hitler youth proper is now 13, not 14, Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher told us. 
which means all of you little brats are moving up into the regular Hitler youth a year earlier than you thought. Next week, in fact. Nazi math. The classroom exploded in happy conversation. Yes, Fritz said, clenching his fist beside me. This is great. Into the real Hitler youth a year early. I was excited too. Entry into the senior Hitler youth would mean even better chances to gather information for the Allies. Now, instead of having to wait to sneak into rooms during dinner parties, I would be given a position of real service in the city, where I could dig up some truly useful Nazi secrets. But then I remembered. To become a senior member of the Hitler Youth, you had to pass a series of physical tests. And there was one I knew I couldn't pass, and never would. I sank in my chair. Just when my career as a spy was about to take off, it was going to crash and burn. All right, enough, Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher said. If this were a university classroom, we would already be studying calculus, the mathematics of the heavens. As it is, I must debase myself with the mathematics of firebombs and distances marched. Clear your desks for your test. I shared Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher's distaste for our math exams. Nazi math was always about war stuff. Questions like, a squadron of 346 bombers drops firebombs on an enemy city. Each airplane carries 500 bombs. How many fires will be caused if 30% of the bombs are hits and only 20% of the hits cause fires? Or, the Jews are aliens in Germany. In 1933, there were 66,060,000 inhabitants in the German Reich, of whom 499,682 were Jews. What was the percentage of aliens? I sighed and attacked the test like the French resistance attacking the occupying Nazi troops, but hoping for better results. When we finished, it was time for one of our many outdoor Hitler Youth training exercises. Officially, school and the Hitler Youth were separate, but whatever the Hitler Youth wanted, like time away from school to exercise and train, they got. Which in the dead of German winter was even more unbearable. If you're afraid of freezing to death, don't worry, Herr Professor Doctor Major Melcher said with barely hidden disgust. I understand some of you will be keeping warm today by burning books. Degenerate filth. A bonfire already burned in the middle of the street, built out of split timber and broken furniture from a house that had been bombed out by the Allies. It reminded me of the bonfire the men had built in the street during Kristallnacht. The orange flames just beginning to flicker in the broken glass at our feet as my parents and I turned the corner. The heat coming off the bonfire here and now was inviting in the bitter February cold. But it was hard to enjoy it, knowing that soon we'd be heaping piles of books on top. The Nazis used to have book burnings like this all the time. Back when Hitler first took over, he ordered that all the un-German books be pulled out of schools and libraries and burned. And the un-German books were pretty much every book. 
People were supposed to burn their own books, too. The Nazis had huge book-burning ceremonies where they tossed all the offending books on the bonfire while they sang Nazi songs and celebrated being stupid. By the time I moved to Berlin in 1937, they were pretty much done with book burnings, mostly because they had already burned every book in Germany. But every now and then, they discovered somebody's hidden stash of degenerate books, and they made a big show out of burning them in the street as a lesson to everyone else. We stood in a line in the street while our Hitler youth leader marched up and down in front of us. His name was Horst, and he was 15. Horst was a thick-necked, donkey-faced idiot whose idea of a good time was throwing rocks at stray dogs. The era of Jewish intellectualism is over, he told us, regurgitating the lines the Hitler Youth Organization had pounded into his thick skull. The German man is not a man of books, but of character, of action. These books, he said, squeezing one of the offending volumes in his fat hand as if it were a cat he was trying to strangle, are evil spirits of the past. We consign them to the flames so the world will know there is no place for decadence and moral corruption in Germany. No, I thought, no place for decadence or moral corruption, but room for book burnings and concentration camps. From the flames of this degenerate filth, Horst said, flinging the book into the bonfire. The phoenix of a new German spirit will rise in triumph. Now get inside there and cleanse that house of its corruption. This was why we were really here. Not to learn a lesson, but to do the work the SS didn't want to do. We broke formation and ran up the steps into the thin, gray little row house. Just inside, in a cold, lifeless parlor, stood a small pile of pathetic-looking books like the last rotting apples left on the ground after a harvest. While the other boys fell on them, grabbing up handfuls to haul outside, I took in the room. There were a few pieces of furniture, worn-looking upholstered chairs, scuffed end tables, a once red rug whose color had faded to a kind of rust brown. But everything personal was gone. There were no mementos on the fireplace mantel, no knickknacks on the tables, Bright round circles of colors stood out on the pale wallpaper where pictures had once hung, and an empty vase in the corner sat on its side, knocked over. It was unbroken, but no one had set it to rights. The cold settled on me, chilling me to the bone. This house was dead, and so too probably were the Germans who had lived in it. Who had they been? An old couple living out their last years together? A young couple making a new start with hand-me-down furniture. A family with children, perhaps a boy my own age. Whoever they had been, they were as dead as this house, or soon would be, carted off to a prison camp to die, all for the sin of hiding forbidden books in their home. I picked up what was left of the books and followed the other boys outside. They weren't thinking about who had lived there or where they had gone, they were merrily tossing the books on the fire, happy for any chance to throw something and watch it burn. I tossed one book onto the fire at a time, slowly, so Horst wouldn't see me standing around doing nothing. My skin crawled 
as if I were consigning little bits of my soul to the fire with each book I threw in. But like smiling at a Nazi dinner party or memorizing facts about the Nazis for tests in school, it was all about the bigger mission. It was all part of the game. If it meant them letting me stick around to steal their secrets so the Allies could win the war, I'd burn every last book in Berlin. Hey, he doesn't want to burn the books, one of the boys yelled. And I flinched. I was busted. Three cheeses tall. I nearly jumped out of my skin, thinking he was talking about me. That I'd been too slow to burn my books, that I'd let my disgust show on my face. But the boy was pointing at someone on the other side of the fire. The Dreikesehoch, he said. He's not burning his books. Dreikesehoch was one of those crazy German compound words where they mash a bunch of little words together to make one big mouthful of a word. The way Übersturmführer meant senior assault leader. Dreikesehoch meant three cheeses tall, like three wheels of cheese stacked one atop the other. It was a silly way of saying somebody was short. And the short kid in this case was Fritz Brendler, the new kid. He was so small, he looked like he was 10 years old, not 13. He had four books in one arm clutched to his chest and another in his hand. And he wasn't throwing any of them on the fire. Fritz stepped back, his eyes wide with fear, as Horst and the other boys surrounded him. What's this? Horst demanded. You don't want to burn these books? I didn't. I just... Fritz stammered. Come on, kid, don't do this, I thought. These boys were animals. Even now they were circling him like wolves. Horst snatched the book out of his hand and read the cover. You just thought Sherlock Holmes wasn't degenerate English filth? Horst flung the book into the fire and advanced on Fritz. No, I just... I'm sorry, I... Fritz said. Just throw the books into the fire, I begged Fritz silently. They're going to kill you if you don't. Horst slapped the other books out of Fritz's arms and kicked them away. Before Fritz could recover... Horst shoved him hard with both hands, sending him flying into the Hitler Youth boys behind him. They grabbed him and punched him like hungry dogs pouncing on rotten meat. Jew lover, they cried. Degenerate! My face burned hot in the crisp winter air, and my hands clenched into fists as the boys fell on Fritz, hitting him, clawing at him, tearing his clothes. My parents and I had walked away from the Jewish man in the street that night of broken glass four years ago because we had a bigger mission than one man. But I was right here, right now, and I wasn't the helpless little boy I'd been then, and these boys weren't the Gestapo. Then again, I was supposed to stay invisible. I wasn't supposed to get involved. Fritz dropped to the ground and curled into a ball the boys kicking him and punching him where he lay. And suddenly, I was back in the schoolyard at St. Paul's in London, and the older boys were kicking me in the legs, the back, the head, their laughter the only thing louder than my crying. I was helpless, ashamed, learning the hardest lesson I'd ever learned. When you fell down, it was over. 
without giving it another moment. So guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, this was Youth Reading Episode 1, Series 1, Part 1, um, Project 1065, and we have read Eleven chapters of this so far. So yeah, thank you much for watching watching. Tomorrow there will be will be a new episode. And yep, bye.